The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, the financial news edition. I'm Penny Sukraj, online editor for Financial News. And today with me is Jamie Fiore Higgins, former Goldman Sachs managing director and author of Bully Market, My Story of Money and Misogyny at Goldman Sachs. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Truth is, you need very little introduction. Your story, because of the book, has hit headlines across the US and major financial centers like London. Now, I jumped into your book, Jamie, very recently after reading a lot about it. I finally actually took the plunge and uh, went to bed with your voice in my head, as I've just told you, um, and listened to a very explosive account of your time at Goldman. I mean, your tales have left me reeling and thinking and overthinking about this stuff for days. To be honest, it was like being immersed in a very sensational bestseller a work of fiction. I I could not believe some of the stories you've told. Um, Stories about rampant drug culture, um, just frequent use of cocaine at all levels of the business, brazen office affairs, and even office sex. And amid all of this, um, women seem to pay the highest price over and over. And you were directly targeted, mood at, pardon me for saying, when you were breastfeeding. you were told you got a promotion because you had a vagina. Let's just go back a little. Why Why did you write this book? Initially, when I left Goldman Sachs in 2016, I really didn't have um, interest in writing the book. But after just kind of sharing anecdotes with people outside the world of Goldman, it really made me realize just how toxic the environment was. Don't get me wrong, I knew it at the time, but there was something for outsiders to consume some of my stories that made me realize it. And so, you know what, I really wanna get this on paper to kind of make sense of why I endured what I endured, but also why I perpetuated what I perpetuated. Because it wasn't like I was just a victim of of the toxic environment. I play my role in it. And so I really wrote it just to kind of make sense of it all and reframe my experience. And then when I finished it, I said, you know what? I think we really need to shine a light on what's going on in some of these large organizations. And so now to me, it's, I want to shine a light on it. I want to um, inspire some conversation and then shift some mindsets and hopefully create some overdue change with what's going on in our, in our companies around the world. Now, you talked about the journey before Goldman, and that was quite different. You actually wanted to be a social worker, but your family thought differently entirely. What happened? So I um, had a lot of medical issues as a child, dealt with a lot of doctors and nurses and physical therapists, and I benefited from the help of social workers. And so- Do you want to just unpack what those medical issues were? Absolutely. That was difficult. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I have a condition called scoliosis, which is actually a very common condition. I had a very uncommon case. 
So I was told when I was 12 that if I didn't have sur surgical intervention within a couple of years, I would die because my spine had started to compress my heart and lungs. So from when I was a very young girl, five years old, I was going to doctors, physical therapists. I was part of clinical trials and then eventually had surgery. And like I had said, I had benefited from support of these medical professionals and especially social worker. I'm happy to report I fully recovered. You know, I was able to, you know, do all the things that a lot of doctors said I wouldn't be able to do, like run and participate in sports. But when I graduated college, I really wanted to like give back and and kind of pay that forward. And in fact, even my senior or my junior year, I took a, one of those personality tests and it even said I needed to be in a helper profession. But my parents had other plans. So I grew up in suburban New Jersey. My parents grew up in poverty. They were children of immigrants. They didn't even have like running water. They didn't even have plumbing. And through hard work and education, we're able to pull themselves into like the middle class. And for my brother and sister and I, the directive was clear. It was every generation has to do better. We went from here to here. Your job is to go from here to there. And the way that the, the pathway to that was getting the best job possible, the best paying job possible. And in 1998, that was Wall Street. And from what I heard around campus, it was Goldman Sachs. And although I was disappointed, right, like I really wanted to be a social worker, I really felt a lot of obligation toward my family. My medical bills, the time off from work, the helping me through the surgery, I really felt like I owed them this um, and I really wanted to make them proud. So I made it my mission first weekend of senior year in college to get a job at Goldman Sachs. And that's that's where the journey began. Wow, that is yeah. that is quite some tale and quite a, a sharp pivot from something that, you know, you really wanted to do because of how you benefited to having to think about the rest of the family. Um, and then you got to Goldman. You had a you had a visit from Goldman recruiters, I think, at uh, when you were at uni and uh, you saw Genevieve. I'm going to ask you about whether you ever found Genevieve um, at Goldman. And you can tell us about it. But yes, you got to Goldman. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So when I started my senior year, they had an event. Goldman Sachs had an event at my college. And there was a woman named Genevieve who was a partner. And she was so impressive. She um, talked about Goldman Sachs marketing pitch at the time for new hires. It was minds wide open. We want women of varied backgrounds. We want to break through the glass ceiling. Uh, we're tired of hiring Wharton business grads, which was down the street um, in Philadelphia. I went to college in suburban Philadelphia. And I really bought into this culture that she was saying, you know what, like we really want varied backgrounds. We want your unique perspectives. And so it was with that kind of sales pitch, I was like all in. It was the right industry my parents wanted. It was the company that everyone said was the best one. And, you know, she was speaking my language. Um, and so I applied and I had 40 interviews, four zero interviews over six months to get my job. And, you know, upon reflection, 
um, I had gotten a lot of job interviews. I had gotten a lot of jobs at really good companies after just a few interviews. And that's not such a comment about how amazing I was. It was a really robust job market in 1998. And the Goldman process kept going on and on, but it really solidified uh, the message that Goldman was special. You know, Goldman is the creme de la creme. So of course we vet people and that's why the um, interview process was so arduous. So, you know, while my grandmother was like, why do they have to have so many interviews with you? I was like, no, no, no. They have to do that because the place is just that special. And then you got there clearly feeling, okay, I, I have been picked. Oh, um, I felt like Charlie Bucket from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It was just like, oh my gosh, there are so few of these opportunities and they chose me and I felt so fortunate to be there. But of course you got there and there were some things that started disturbing you pretty early, um, some shockingly explicit stuff. Do you want to tell us about that, those early days for you? Yeah. So again, show up the first day, so proud of myself. Um, and I'll never forget going into like the amphitheater. The first six weeks at Goldman Sachs are a training program. So you don't go into the actual business you were hired into. You almost have like a mini MBA, if you will, to kind of indoctrinate you into the culture. That first day I show up, starts at seven, and the head of human resources who ran the program locked the door at seven. And he said, we start at seven, not 701, not 702. If you're a minute late, you're out for the day. You have to get a signed, an apology letter signed by your partner, which could be your like boss's boss's boss. And I remember I was, there was so, one part of me that was just so relieved I was on the right side of the door. And then another part of me was like, wow, this is so punitive. But then the guy said, Welcome to Goldman Sachs, home of the most paranoid and insecure people in the world, because that's what it takes to put up with this environment. It's harder to get into Goldman than get into Harvard. So you should be thanking your lucky stars that you're in this seat. So although part of me was like, mm, this is a little weird. At the same time, I'm like, you know what? This is the creme de la creme. This is what they expect. And instead of being concerned about how they're expectations were very punitive. I was just so excited to rise to the occasion and make my family proud. That was like the first moment of that day. And then as training got along, those six weeks transpired, I found a big difference between me and my peers. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there were some peers who started that year who came from modest backgrounds too. So, you know, just to be clear, I came from New Jersey. I had no connections. Um, I didn't know anything about the markets. I didn't even know anything about finance. I was a math major. I wasn't like an econ, you know, econ major or, or a finance major or even an accounting major. But a lot of my peers seem to kind of know about this world. So a lot of them were children of partners, children of clients. They kind of grew up in finance. Some of them bragged that they had been managing their own stock portfolio since, you know, they were 12. Um, and they would tease me and say, you'll never make it here, Jamie. You know, you don't know a stock from a rock. Um, but one of my character flaws is that I like nothing more than to prove people wrong about me. You know, uh, just like when, you know, the doctors had told me during my surgery that I may never run again. I was like, just watch me. And I worked hard and I, you know, 
was was very successful in track in high school. And so th in the same way, you know, in the same way, I wanted to prove them wrong. But I noticed that there was this kind of culture of affluence that I wasn't a part of. And a lot of these peers, right, who were sons and daughters of partners and clients, they had only had three or four interviews. So they kind of had this laissez-faire attitude. They almost had this safety net under them, um, you know, to kind of cover them if they made mistakes, uh, like parents and, you know, um, relationships. And I felt like I had nothing but my hard work. And again, it, it definitely made me feel like an outsider, but I was just so excited to be there and so excited to have the opportunity to provide for my family and make them proud. And then this very special pedigree showed you a different side of life. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. some um, interesting experiences just, and, and things you saw firsthand. Yeah, so- there an anecdote at least? Yeah, no, so from, you know, the first day at work, they wined and dined us at night. These, oh my gosh, super high-end steak restaurants with seafood towers worth hundreds of dollars. And, you know, it was mind boggling. And so on one hand, I was surrounded by this class and affluence, but then, you know, that day we had signed um, agreements pledging to be drug-free and yet there were girls snorting cocaine in the bathroom. You know, and so here I am like, how can they just be, I'm just ever the rule follower. And it was like the rules didn't apply to them. And in fact, you know, two of two of the, the new hires, I worked late one night to work on a project and they offered um, these computer lab rooms to kind of print up your, your presentations and stuff. And I walked in on a couple having sex <laughs> and it was just like, what is this world? Like there are these high standards this um, veneer of this kind of high class and polish that Genevieve back at my college kind of marketed, but yet there was this whole kind of subculture that literally was like the antithesis of what was described. And um, and through that, you obviously got to know, you you did get past the training and you got entrenched um, in, in one of the departments and you started observing people because you were there long hours yes. uh, the, the philo on the floor the philo on the floor yeah um and you learned about how your male colleagues started scoring women mm. um can you just for our audience who ha haven't read you yeah. know tell us a little bit about this this practice well, so this is i'm dating myself here but goldman had a facebook before facebook was facebook and it was this booklet they put out right when all the new hires joined the firm and it had our picture and our bio. And, you know, I'm sure the firm created these Facebooks to give to the existing employees at the firm to say, hey, look through this, see if there's someone who maybe went to your college or shared the same major or from the same hometown to kind of inspire some organic mentoring. Um, but yet the guys on my desk used it in a different way. So they, poured over the Facebook and actually created a Excel spreadsheet, even with macros um, that ranked the women based on their appearance, their breast size, their leg length. And their whole thing was, we're going to determine who we mentor and, you know, have coffee with and have drinks with based on that. And it was my first, you know, experience of I kind of call it the white noise of Wall Street, that kind of misogyny that's kind of always 
you know, kind of brewing constantly on the trading floor. What about the other women uh, and, and the women who you worked with? Were they aware of this? How, how did they respond? And did you actually respond in some way to, to these guys as well? Yeah, so my jaw hit the floor and I turned bright red and which really entertained the guys and they one whispered in my ear and said don't you know Jamie sex will get you further on Wall Street than an Ivy League diploma and then I earned my first nickname which was Sister Jamie the prude little nun now as for my colleagues you know to be clear this behavior came from a minority it was kind of this loud minority in terms of everyone else on the desk some kind of laughed it off and I'm sure they were uncomfortable doing so, or, you know, I assume that, but most just ignored it. And so to me, looking back, that was kind of my first lessons around silence and ignorance. And what I observed over time is when bad behavior like that is ignored, then it becomes normalized and then it becomes escalated. So, you know, even for me, when I would see little things that just kind of didn't sit right, did it kind of sit right in my gut? And I would bring it up. It would be like, oh, Jamie, you're a drama queen. Oh, Jamie, that's just the way it is. And it's kind of really that kind of gaslighting that they make you feel like, well, no, you're crazy. This is just normal. And since everyone else ignored it, you know, the first thing you do when you're in an environment and something happens and it doesn't sit right, you kind of look around for cues. Like, is this just me that thinks this is crazy? But no one really did that. And that kind of made it normal. Just on a day-to-day -day basis, how prevalent would you say was that sort of culture, that language, that, you know, just um, environment? Yeah, yeah I, I, I call it white noise because it's just ever present in the background. So it's whether, you know, spreadsheets ranking, you know, that, you know, women's attributes to crude jokes, sexist banter, you know, dirty pictures. It was kind of always ever present. And, you know, with people either, you know, with so many people ignoring it and people telling me, well, this is just the way it is. I just decided, you know what, I'm here to make my family proud. I'm here to contribute to my family. I'm going to just tune it out like the white noise it is, put my head down and get to work. But it was constantly there. But the fact that it was, as you say, you know, white noise meant it became normalized for you too, to some extent. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Um, you know, when you're in an environment where, you know, you're constantly kind of said, well, that's just the way it is. They don't mean anything by it. It's just a joke. Don't be such a stick in the mud. You know, um, don't be Sister Jamie. Don't take it so seriously. Over time, being a 22-year-old um, and having this be the only professional environment I knew, I began to believe that this was just the way it was. Yeah, that is, that is difficult, actually, being young uh, and having this, you know, it, in your first job and you not quite knowing what you can and can't do and should and shouldn't say and obviously not wanting to disadvantage yourself in any way. Um, did you ever think about whether this stuff should be reported? Did the others talk about it in any way? So what I observed over time was, you know, I... Like I said, I was going to put my head down and get to work. And I feel like that worked for a while. But then I started getting recognized. 
and getting promoted and getting opportunities. And then I found that um, different kind of aggressive acts were kind of directed toward me as opposed to kind of being white noise affecting everyone. It was kind of toward me. And I experienced some things and I would then kind of raise it and say, I think this is an HR issue. And then that's where money and opportunity was kind of dangled in front of me as payment for my silence. So we have me about one of those incidents that you felt needed. Sure. Yeah. So um, I can once was when um, as I grew more senior, I became someone that a lot of the junior women looked up to because, you know, here I was a woman, um, you know, I was married. Um, then I started having kids. I was almost like the Goldman poster child. And women would come to me for advice and they would tell me stories like, you know, this person makes me feel uncomfortable at night. Um, you know, uh, one woman specifically complained that um, two of the men on the desk were targeting her um, and kind of taking business away from her. So really hurting her ability to make money. And I brought it up to management. I said, this is a problem. And they said, she's just a drama queen making excuses you know, you can fight for her and, you know, go make a complaint, but just so you know, it's going to cost you and you should really be thinking about your own career. So I was caught between this rock and this hard place where I really, my values were saying, protect this woman, fight for her. But then I was saying, I have a family at home to support. I want to get promoted. I want to um, continue to, to go up the chain. And so I did nothing. And then actually this one woman sued which I was happy for. She left the firm and she sued. And um, she was very clear about her complaints as she walked out the door. And so my partner called me in about a month later and said, listen, outside counsel is doing a review on your business, um, is doing a review on our business and talking about what this woman had claimed to be. And I need to give them a woman to interview to take the temperature about what it's like to be a woman in this business. And I can't imagine you're going to say anything negative because we want to promote you to managing director this year. What's negative about that? So, you know what, Penny, I lied. And I said, it was a great place for women to work. Um, and then actually when I was assaulted by a client, excuse me, not by a client, by a colleague over a client issue. Um, I was, what happened, Jamie? Yeah, so I was managing a business and it it was revealed to me that one of the guys I managed was having an affair with his client, which you can imagine is completely taboo, inappropriate. I brought it up to my partner. He said, we'll just get him off the account. I said, okay, fine. I'm going to get him off the account. There, were, there isn't a direct conflict. I didn't want to signal him out. So I said, I'm going to just move all the client you know, I'm going to move all the client coverage around so he doesn't feel like he's singled out. I pulled him aside on a Friday afternoon to tell him that he was losing this one client, beginning another of similar size. And he went crazy. He charged at me. He got me against the wall. He pinned me by my throat. He told me he wanted to rip my face off. I was absolutely shocked. I was scared. There was nobody around. Um, luckily, he like came to his senses. He let go of me and he left. It was a Friday. There was the weekend. I came in on that Monday morning and I talked to my partner. Um, and he said to me, 
you can go to HR, but I'm not going to get rid of this guy. And the reason why they weren't going to get rid of this guy is because he was a scratch golfer. He was an impeccable golfer. He probably could have been pro, but he had friends who were pros all across the country. So he was able to get tee times at Augusta, Pebble Beach, all the premier courses, courses in Europe. And that currency was worth more than my safety. So he said, you can report it, but I'm not getting rid of him. So imagine how hard it's going to be for you to continue to manage him after you report him. And so once again, Penny, I was thinking about my livelihood, my ability to, to you know, provide for my family. So I didn't say anything. And so these are the things that, you know, I'm not proud of kind of going back to that white noise where people ignored things and they got normalized. Well, then I just completely lied to myself and others about how difficult it was all just for the sake of money and promotion. Well, clearly you, your, your skin in the game, so to speak, was just, um, you know, just so, so precious and so difficult, um, especially because of your family. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, we're at the moment going through a very tumultuous time in banking. Uh, we've seen the failure of a few banks recently. Yeah. We've seen the, the takeover of Credit Suisse by UBS. And Credit Suisse, as we know, has had a fair few blunders. I'd love to know what your thoughts are on on what shareholders should be thinking about and how they should respond to these issues because quite often these issues come to light either because of a court case or because of a book, a tell-all like yours. And, and it's very rare that um, the true nature and, and culture of institutions are brought out into the open. How do you think they, they should be responding or thinking about this especially in light of ESG, of course. Yeah, I think it comes down to psychological safety, feeling comfortable speaking up and speaking out. And a lack of people being able to do that has its costs in both the real business world and also in like the personnel issues too. Um, and a lot of it has to do with secrecy, right? And secrecy isn't a bad thing from business, right? You don't, you know, Mrs. Fields keeps her cookie recipe secret for a reason because it makes it valuable. Companies like Goldman Sachs want to come to the market with proprietary products that only they have. That secret sauce that makes the business profitable. I'm all about secrecy, except when it bleeds into personnel issues, because that's that secrecy is where toxicity grows. And also that secrecy, because you're afraid to speak up even for business issues, where people are afraid to say, I know you want me to hit this goal, this metric, but we're going to have to cut corners to do it. And people say, well, we're going to have to because we're afraid to be honest and say we can't hit this metric. So to me, it's all about feeling psychologically safe enough to speak up, whether things are being done wrong on the business side or being done wrong on the personnel side and keeping secrecy in check. And I think what shareholders need to say is let's rip off the veil and the shroud of the secrecy. And I think some of the ways you do that is converting some of these things into metrics that can be reported on and therefore they can be held accountable of. Having a curiosity to look into the never ending um, business account that writes the settlement checks 
really look into those. Think of those as not just a cost of doing business, wondering what goes wrong, have a postmortem and get metrics to solve for the problem so it doesn't happen again. And then if it does, hold someone accountable. No, that is such a fair and valuable point. And, you know, you we talked as well about how some of this culture is really, you know, crushing women's ability as well as you found to, to get to partner level. Um, at Goldman, for example, the latest partner promotions just from November showed 29% of new partners are women, up from 27% in 2020. 9% uh, black compared to 7% two years earlier. But still, there's no there's no real gender parity. Um, how do you think we can change this? And what do you think investors um, should be suggesting around this as well? Um, the trends are great. I'd also then say, okay, that's great that the new partners are that percentage, but the existing partner pool is still under 20%, right? Because it's, it's, it's lagging. And this is all in an environment where 50% of the new hires, the analyst level that I start in are women. So we're hiring 50% of women for the start, but yet they don't, they don't last. They don't stay. Where do they go? I feel like these companies need to have a humility and a curiosity around it to really, again, firms like Goldman Sachs slice and dice everything. They throw metrics on everything. Why aren't they doing an analysis of this is what happens to this population at what point in their careers, set some real goals, have programs to meet those goals, and then have accountability if those goals aren't hit, they've been hiring 50% women for so long. Why aren't these women going up the, up the, up the line? And I feel like it's because there's a lack of support. And even for me, I was successful. I hit that managing director level, but it's really because I had to toe the party line and basically agree with the, male partner in the corner office. So even though I was technically a diversity hire, I wasn't bringing my diverse um, opinions and perspectives. So I really think, listen, DEI didn't exist as a role 20 years ago. It's great that it's a focus and it's great that there's soft talking points around it. Let's get some metrics on that and hold people accountable, accountable for that. And that's when I think you're gonna see the change. And that's what I think shareholders should demand. Oh, that's brilliant. That's a really brilliant point. And I think that's what will speak. You know, it's the numbers and, and looking at real, uh, real trend and data. Um, Jamie, I'm going to stop with my questions because we've got quite a few uh, from our audience. So a few um, that have come in um, from Maria. Firstly, how can we engender more empathy in male workers? You know, I think that we need to start giving people the benefit of the doubt. Meaning I talk in my book about some of the more egregious things, but you know, I've heard from a lot of men who have said, you know, Jamie, I don't think I'm, I don't think I am contributing to a toxic work environment, but I don't think I am looking up enough. So to me, it's just get curious and look around. I'm not saying you need to do something big or make big waves at your organizations. I'm saying 
make small ripples. Pay attention to who is speaking in the room. Look at your customer allocation and really ask yourself, how am I doing this in terms of allocating opportunities? How, you know, where are these business deals getting done? Is there an opportunity for everyone to be there and be comfortable? So I think in order to get some compassion, I think it starts with humility to say, I might not be perfect. I might not be getting this right. Let me be curious and ask myself some questions and ask some questions about, you know, among my peers to see what we can do together as an organization to improve. And I think a lot of these things are small steps. And I think a lot of people aren't paying enough attention because they're so focused on their own world, much like a lot of those people who ignored that spreadsheet you know, that the guy's corrected. It's like, you know what? What if someone had said that day, that's disgusting, knock it off. I bet you it would have been nipped in the bud. And maybe some of that behavior wouldn't have been escalated six months later, a year later. No, fair point. Just having having uh, the courage uh, to, to step out and step up. Um, Lisa says, uh, toxic work culture many times perpetuate from the top level of organizations dominated by men, as you've captured in the book. Why aren't they listening or realizing that their actions are causing employees to look elsewhere? I don't know if they have really appreciated the cost of this. I don't think we're gonna see real change until people get really serious and know that not providing an environment where people of different backgrounds have ample opportunity is going to cost them. So that's why, you know, I believe the C-suite of Goldman wants to do all those things. I believe they write all the things for the partners to do, but nobody is walking the floors to actually make sure it gets done. And I don't think it's getting done because I think a lot of these people just don't think it's important. So to me, when I worked at a training desk at Goldman, we had um, compliance officers walk the floors to make sure we didn't get pulled over by the SEC, right? We knew it was important to be creative and push the envelope to make money, but to do it within a legal framework. Wouldn't it be amazing if HR Goldman weren't 40 floors above us, which they were, but actually on the floor looking around, their presence would send a message from the C-suite to the middle managers that this is important. So even if you don't think it is, we think it is, and you're going to be held accountable for it. So I think at the end of the day, it's bringing in metrics, bringing in accountability. And you know what? That's a way to get people all of a sudden caring about something that they don't really think is that important. That actually makes tremendous sense. I mean, of course, police patrol the streets. Their presence means something. Um, okay, we've got um, a question from Lee. Were the very upper level of management aware of the abuse that you detail in the book? And if so, what was the reaction? So it, de it depends on what you determine upper management. The C-suite didn't. The direct partner in my business that you can consider senior, because that's the highest level at Goldman, knew, knew all of it and allowed it to happen. That kind of goes back to my point where I think a lot of these people in the C-suite set it and forget it. They set the goals, they send the message, and they 
keep on moving along. And you know what? If the business is making money, they don't question. Again, that's why I think it's so important for them to walk the floors, show that it's important. You only show it, you have to show, not tell. You can't just tell them it's important. You have to show them it's important that by presence, by metrics, by accountability. So, you know, if my partner in charge had been held accountable for stuff like workplace culture, guess what? There'd be an issue. But that was just ignored and swept under the rug because he was making a lot of money. So again, I think it's that humility and curiosity. Just don't assume that everything's okay. Just don't assume because you're not hearing stories that everything's okay. Consider that some of these stories might be being suppressed. Well, that's a fair point. Um, Justin asks, where were the regulators when everything you document was going on? Or do you th do they not think it is relevant to conduct uh, risks, to conduct risks? <laughs> yeah, it didn't, I mean, it didn't exist. Most of the things I talk about, I never even made, made it to HR. However, there was one event that I called HR and I reported it and that got, that got swept under the rug. So again, there are not regulators that police for this stuff. It's a nice to have, it's not a need to have, and that's exactly the problem. Do you, do you think, Jamie, that there's room for this to be developed into some level of, you know, regulatory requirement and compliance uh, around, around reporting this, around, I, I suppose, NDAs, you know, should, should companies be made to report these to the regulators, for example? What are your thoughts? Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. I mean, because again, then you'd have the, then that would show that when something needs to be reported, it's deemed important. And so yes, and yes, and yes to all of it. And I think if people knew that that needed to be reported by the regulators, you better believe there would be a lot more involvement to make sure these things don't happen. And that's, again, what's something shareholders can demand. That's something, you know, employees can demand. Um, but again, until they're really forced to do it, I don't know if they're going to. Listen, they might lose out on talent, right? People might say, I just don't want to work there. But fortunately for them, and unfortunately for progress, there'd be a line of other people down, you know, out the door to take their places. So there's got to be something. They have to have enough skin in the game to make the change. Of course, that does bring us to the, the question as well about protection for people when they do speak out. We've got a question from David. Does there need to be more protection for those willing to speak up and call out toxic behavior? Do you think the negative experience some whistleblowers have described, for example, deters people from speaking out? A hundred percent. I mean, I know this because I've heard from hundreds and hundreds of people, near a thousand who are either too afraid to speak out, they all send me private messages, Penny, because literally uh, someone sent me a message the other day, subject line, too afraid to come out publicly with all these stories, because there is either a pattern of within organizations, you report it to HR, right? So I've heard from several women from Goldman, I reported XYZ to HR, six months later, my review went down, six months later, I was let go. So again, where is the curiosity and the analysis of, let's look at these reviews of people who historically have done really well, all of a sudden they've done poorly. 
Let's look into that a little bit more. Um, right now, there is not protection. And unfortunately, for a lot of people, I think the statistic is very high that if you make a claim against someone in the courts, chances are you will never work in that industry again. So knowing that, a lot of people just continue to keep quiet. Now, I think we have time for just one more question. Um, so I'm going to ask the question for Amber. Do you think regulator, regulatory policing uh, is the answer and different policing uh, could change behavior? If individuals or grown adults have no issue with current conduct, how can you teach them that they're wrong? Listen, I think it comes down from... I think it comes from the top down or the bottom or the bottom up. So I think um, if companies truly care about their workplaces, like they say they do, I think there needs to be metrics around it, like we talked about in terms of really tracking their employees so they get the diversity they hope for, and that they also put a PL, if you will, on the importance of culture. Um, I think for um, you know, I think for the people who are in the environment now that continue to need to work, I think it's about um, getting support outside the organization to kind of help you. I know for me, part of my problem was, although I had support within the organization, we were both, my mentor and I were both kind of wearing the, the glasses tinted with toxicity. So even the advice she gave me was, because she was used to accepting things the way they were. To me, it's like, get someone outside your organization. I, I think the key is firms like Goldman Sachs are very good at making you believe you're nothing without them, you're nothing without their name, you're nothing without their money. Goldman Sachs was very good at making me feel that I would never be successful outside those doors. So I felt like a prisoner that I had to stay. And so, you know, what I really want people to get from my book is you have options. Okay, I get it. You might not want to go to HR, but you know what? Find someone to work with outside the organization to make a plan if you're unhappy and for the new hires to walk in and have more confidence than I did to make those small corrections along the way, to give people the benefit of the doubt. Gee, I'm sure you didn't mean when you said X, Y, Z, but it landed this way with me. And I'm telling you, a lot of these bullies, you know the old bully on the playground, a lot of times they're the weak ones and they just need to be put in their place. And so I really hope, you know, people today feel a little more confident and have the support from each other. You know, it's a lot easier to confront a bully when a bunch of people are saying knock it off um, than one person against the bully. So I think a lot of it is just perspective and mindset. And I also think these organizations need to take it more seriously by putting deliverables around it. Jamie, thank you so much. That That is such helpful advice. Um, I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you um, today and before. And, um, you know, it's been really amazing. And I think our tuned-in tuned audience has really enjoyed this. We've had so many more questions that we couldn't ask today. Uh, but certainly, yes, putting a PNL on culture, that's an interesting topic. I think you could probably write your next book on that. Yeah. And I also think, too, it's just I'm so grateful that you're talking about it because here's the rub. This is happening. My story is just about Goldman Sachs. But again, mm -hmm. this happens in every industry, big business, small town business. We only need two people to have a power dynamic that goes wrong. So to me, let's just keep talking about it and shining light on it. What I... What I've been surprised at is in the six months since my book has come out, how taboo this topic is when it affects so many. 
So, you know, even just to talk about it and shift a little perspective, I think will go a long way in moving the ball forward. Absolutely. Well, that's all we have time for today. Jamie, thank you so much. Thanks to our audience for tuning in. We hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow on US and China tensions. Barron's Ideas editor Matt Peterson will speak with Christopher Smart, chief global strategist and head of Bearings Investment Institute, about where geopolitics matters most for investors. Thank you again for listening today. Stay safe and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.